I need your help. We, 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 we need to go to bump the Shroud of Turin. You said I could see my family today. That was before I needed something, Morty. People are wrong on the internet. If I get it, I'll be awesome. We've been going nonstop, Rick. It's not healthy. Oh, that's wow, Morty. Wow. What an exciting life you lead. Let's go. In and out. 20 minutes adventure. <laughs> What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm Jordan. With me today, of course, is Jared, and we are exhausted because this is episode three of our one-part series on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, if you don't know what the Shroud of Turin is, you should go check out parts one and two. It's a uh, ancient linen that allegedly has Jesus' image on it. So that's what it looks like right there. And we've spent the last month of our lives debunking this. I don't know about you, Jared. I did not anticipate just how much there was to talk about on the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, I didn't either. I thought it was just a couple like, oh, this is the image. It's either it was painted or it wasn't painted. I didn't realize there was a whole scientific field devoted to uh, the authenticity of the shrouds. <laughs> right. It's uh, yeah. But now we know and you get to benefit from our pain. So episode one, we went over the radiometric dating and other forms of possible dating methods. Uh, episode two, the last episode, we we talked about the image, how it might have been formed. And so today we're going to talk about the rest. Mostly we're going to talk about the history of the shroud and can we use historical data to pull it further back in time from where it shows up uh, according to the radiometric dating and some other kind of miscellaneous grab back things. Yeah, this episode will be a little bit less scientific and a little bit more art historian textile kind of episode um so yeah yeah not just because of the topic uh it's the other two episodes there's a lot of work being published on those topics there's not a lot of peer-reviewed work being published on these topics that we're going to get into the art history and things like that i i couldn't find any like any at all about a lot of these things and it that's not great because I am not an art historian. I'm not an expert in this. Jared, I know you majored in history in college in your undergrad. Yep. But you're also not a historian. Neither of oh. us are qualified to be an authority on this topic. So uh, we, at the same time, we think that the process of skepticism belongs to everybody. Anybody can do it. Even if you're religious, you can be a religious skeptic. That's fine. And you don't need to be an expert to be a skeptic. What you do need is to know how to find the experts and how to listen to what they say and how to differentiate between who is an expert and who isn't. So we've had a list of citations in each of our videos. We'll have one here and we're going to do our best to highlight where we found the information and maybe some limitations to them as we go along the way. Another important thing to point out here too is that you don't always have access to experts or experts don't always publish on the thing that you're trying to research. So you can still apply the tools of skepticism get the best information you can and then make a decision based on that information. Right. So exactly. So uh, the shroud in history, you'll have heard this a couple of times if you've watched the other two videos, but the undisputed history of the shroud starts in 1352 in France. 
it shows up in the possession of one Joffrey de Charnay. He is a, or was a French knight, and he kept it in a chapel in a that he built in the town that presumably he ruled over, Lorraine, in southeast, uh, southeast of Paris. And so that's almost certainly the shroud, for sure 100% the shroud, when he put it on display about 30 years later in 1389. And from 1389 onwards, we have a pretty good idea of who had the shroud at what time and what happened to it. Like, we have, we have a pretty good record from there on. So 1352 forward, we know where it was and what was happening. 1352 back, very fuzzy, right? That's so, it's important, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So that actually is about when the radiocarbon dating puts it in history, coincidentally. So what we're going to do today is let's dig into some sources that proponents claim show that that radiocarbon dating is false, starting with the most famous and the most popular one you'll see. Anytime you're talking, digging into the shroud, you're going to see this one talked about, the Prey Codex. So the Hungarian Prey Codex, which is actually Prey, not Prayer Codex. A lot of times you'll hear people on the internet saying it's a Prayer Codex. That's not what it is. I'm, it's actually, I'm probably going to say that because it flows way more <laughs> yeah. naturally. The, uh, it's actually the guy who discovered its name was... Um, Georgi Prey, I don't know how to pronounce his first name. Uh, it was discovered, Hungarian. yeah, in 1770. Um, and so it's it's just a a manuscript that has a bunch of various topics in it throughout, you know, religion and history related to Christianity, <laughs> and um, hung, and just Hungarian history and Hungarian history as well, right? Uh, which probably has a lot of Christianity history in it. But it also dates to uh, it's dated to about the 12th century. Um, the, the late 12th century, like the late 1190-ish. Yeah. yeah, there's a couple of people you'll hear, you'll see the dates 1192, 1195 thrown around. Doesn't matter for our purposes, 1190 circa is perfect because why? That would put it outside the lower bound of the radiocarbon dating. Radiocarbon dating, the, the oldest age was 1260. If this was indeed the shroud and it was there in 1190, that is another... A ding against that radiocarbon dating. Yeah. That is probably the biggest reason that the Hungarian Prey Codex comes into the conversation for the Shroud of Turn because it proves proves that it showed up in history prior to that dating. So it right. calls into question the dating, which is important if you're trying to say, well, that dating doesn't work. And also important to say, well, it's obviously throughout history. So okay, what exactly is this thing that we're talking about here? So, so there are the the Prey Codex is a is a illuminated manuscript, which means the person writing it drew pictures sometimes and made it nice and pretty. Mm -hmm. And one picture in particular is the one that we're interested in. This is a picture of Jesus, his death, and then the visitation of the tomb by the three Marys. So this is it. It's blown up in the actual uh, book. It, it was small. I mean, it's not like teeny tiny, but it's not huge either. Like he wasn't writing on a big canvas. Okay. Yeah. And, and this so, is actually, it's actually split up into two parts. So you have an upper part and a lower part. So. Right. They're right there together on the page, but the image or miniature as it's referred to has the two parts. The top part has the anointing of Jesus. So you can see uh, there Jesus, uh, Joseph, presumably Joseph Arimathea and others are like anointing the body and preparing it for burial. And then in the bottom part, you have the three Marys arriving at the tomb. Jesus isn't there. And there's an angel there which is common. This is a common motif in uh, medieval artwork. Mm -hmm. So the features of this image are, there are features of this that are claimed by strap proponents to be so unlikely to have occurred on their own that the only reasonable conclusion is that the artist who made this prey codex was, uh, was copying the Shroud of Turin, had like either was looking at it or had seen it or was like in some way influenced directly or indirectly by the Shroud. 
right? So this it's, is a scene yeah. that happens everywhere, but they're going to say there these specific details show that they were looking at the shroud when they did this one. I mean, just look at it. It's identical to the shroud, right? So I mean, identical, obviously. So <laughs> well, a couple uh, key features, right? So we have uh, no thumbs on Jesus's hand. So uh, yeah, if you look at the top, Jesus' hands are like on his uh, his groinal area there. No thumbs on his hands. He's also naked, which is important because Jesus is naked in the shroud. So, and it's, and, and, it's unusual. And, yeah, it is unusual. A lot of times, uh, people. Christians are very modest, so they would cover Jesus up with either a loincloth or some sort of either he'd be in the burial cloth itself. Um, a couple other key features on this is the zigzag pattern in the uh, circles um, in the what they call the shroud. And we'll get to that in a minute. And then uh, the burn holes. Um, right. Which so. are more circles. So more circles. There's, there's a lot yeah. of a amateur opinions on this and a couple experts who have opined on it, but I couldn't find anything in the way of peer reviewed articles by experts in relevant fields. There was an article by Casabianca kind of surveying what people had said, but he was surveying even by his own admission amateurs among others. And there wasn't much peer reviewed stuff there. So yeah, there's actually a quote from that paper. He's like, expert, expert, amateur, expert. I'm like, wait yeah, a second. Right. <laughs> and uh, he does quote a few books, um, or, or papers, they were all in French, and I don't speak French, and also uh, Google Translate wouldn't translate them for me. So if it's not English, it doesn't count as science. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe but, those papers are great. I can't assess them because I have no access to them. So we're just going to go with what we got. Starting so yeah. with the thumbs. Let's, let's start, start with, with the thumbs. thumbs. So let's get a big old close-up of this. And we're actually going to use the, um, the photo positive of this so that way we can get a better picture because it's really faint. Sorry, the negative. And people got us on that for the first one. And then anyways, we're going to look at the black and white image because it's easier to see the contrast so you can see the right. the lack of thumbs. <laughs> so you can see here the way that uh, the... I'm going to call this person Jesus, Steve, whether, whatever. The person on the shroud who's supposed to be Jesus, the way his hands are laying, his thumbs are not visible. Presumably they're underneath his hands in some way. And they're folded about where his groin would be. Now... According to uh, proponents, because the prey codex also has his hands folded like that and you can't see his thumbs, that shows that they were dependent on each other. Um, this seems to be a pretty thin read. So according to Casabianca, who, again, is a prodigious shroud proponent, he is in favor of shrouds authenticity. Byzantine artists, and this would have been painted in the Byzantine Empire um, from that area, they often in this period didn't show thumbs. It was just kind of an artistic choice. Not always. And even in the pre codex, you can see some of the people do have thumbs, but it wasn't uncommon for them to not show thumbs, right? If you so, even look in the pre codex itself on the same image, there are people in here who don't have thumbs. So. Some have thumbs, some don't. Some don't, yeah. Right. Uh, so sometimes you feel like a thumb, right? So, and, and they even omit it sometimes when it would makes sense anatomically for it to be there. And so remember what we have to be establishing is not that they are similar, but that they are so similar in such an odd way that, that it couldn't, couldn't have happened by chance. Because you have to remember, there are hundreds, thousands of images of this scene. They're gonna have similarities. They need to be distinctive in some way, right? Um, okay, so moving on from the thumbs, Jesus is naked. Now, as we uh, point out, Art historian uh, Thomas de Wesselow makes a lot of this. 
it's uncommon for pictures of the time to show that Jesus was naked. Both the Shroud and Codex do so, right? Okay, so that is true, and it is a point of crossover they have that is rare among art. So this is probably the best point that they have, I think. Um, but they also want to put the uh, hands being crossed over the groin as a separate point. So Jesus is naked, they'll say, is one point of agreement. Hands crossed over the groin is another point of agreement. In my mind, those are both the same point, right? Right, because they're obviously covering up Jesus' Pepe, right? Or, right, yeah. yeah. Like, if <laughs> so if you're <laughs> if you're the, the Prey Codex artist and say that uh, you, you chose, even if you don't know the Shroud is around, you're not basing on the Shroud, whatever, you chose to paint Jesus naked, where are you going to put his hands up? You're not going to have Jesus's penis hanging out on your prey codex, right? On your, on your little book manuscript. You're not going to show Jesus dick on your manuscript. So no, man, you got to one... have his hands like up on his head, like flaunting. Hey. You know? <laughs> hey. I mean, he is pretty ripped. He's definitely gone to the gym quite a yeah. bit. So uh, <laughs> no. So that's obviously the only place you'd put the hands. So that is a gimme. If, if he's naked, that's where his hands are going to be, but he is naked. So point to them. Right. Well, that's not the most clear thing that I think or their their biggest argument. I think their biggest argument comes down to the weaves and the burn holes, right? So if we actually take a look at the supposed weave patterns here, um, this is a picture where you have actually seen the the shroud uh, of a close-up of the shroud weave pattern matched up next to the image on the prey codex which is supposedly the shroud in the image. And they're suggesting that this um, staggered thing is very unique and supposed to be uh, representative of the weave. Right. The argument is that the artist was trying to communicate that this is the Shroud of Turin and these are very distinctive weaves. And so it, his attempt to do that was to draw this zigzag pattern, which would be reminiscent of the herringbone pattern on the shroud. That's the argument. Yep. Um, and... In addition to this, kind of hand in hand, they point to the circles there on the left that are in the shape of an L. There's a close-up of them. And they point to some burns, which are in the shape of an L. Don't ignore the one that's not in the corner over there. Ignore that one. Uh, just look at the ones that are the L shape. Definitely look at any others. And uh, they happen to be also in an L shape. And so, ipso facto, therefore, QED, they're the same right there. there that's that's what they're saying yeah and we're gonna brush by the the burn holes fairly Pardon. fast right but this is probably one of the biggest arguments in favor of the hungarian prey codex being the actual right route, because so. if this was distinctive if this was very unusual for this artist like there's no reason for him to put circles here and he chose to do it that would be a good argument. I'm going to come back. We're going to put a pin in that. We'll back to the circles. Yeah. We'll circle back. We will circle back to the circles in just a second. But first, let's just situate this image in its historical context. Because I'm not a medieval art historian. I don't look at medieval art all the time. So let's look at some depictions of this scene in medieval art and just see yep. what we're looking at. So remember, uh, before we do that, we have two separate panes here. So these are two scenes depicted on top of one another. So a lot of the images we look at will not necessarily be both of these these right. things represented. So you see one or the other usually. So if we go to a couple images here, what do we have? We have a tomb uh, with a diagonal shaped uh, sarcophagus or lid, an angel sitting on the tomb, and three Marys. Right. You've got a stone box or a box yep. of some sort, and the lid is a rectangle kind of at an angle. 
and the angels chilling out on it. He's also pointing saying, Hey, look, there's no Jesus in there. And you can, you can see in this one, the shroud is kind of like poking out of the, of the tomb and it's obviously doesn't have a body in it. The one on the right actually has, uh, Jesus's body with the shroud. So this person obviously never saw the shroud of turn because he put a shroud on the body here. Um, not in the way that the turn shroud would have been exactly. But you do notice the important thing is you've got sarcophagus, rectangle sarcophagus. it's, It's also pretty decorated, pretty decorated. Yeah. If we go on, here's some more examples. Uh, we can see in the left image here, uh, Angel sitting on a diagonal lid with. Yeah, I should say real quick, I realize we also release this audio on Podbean. I'm sorry, there's going to be a lot of pictures in this episode. You should probably watch it on YouTube. Yeah, but... if, if you made it this far in the audio only version, uh, I apologize. You must be super confused, I'm sorry. Yeah. But then we have to look at pictures. That's the way it is. So this anyway, image continue. has a angel sitting on a diagonal shaped um, lid. Yep. And more of the with, same. More of the same. We, yep. Boom. You're All getting over the theme. The we don't need to beat you to death with it. Uh, here's just, another let's one. Let's go through a couple here. So through, we can there's see. another one looks the same. Another one. You're getting the theme. This is a very common set of images that you see in the Middle Ages. Wow, okay. that's so weird. There's so many of those that are this yeah. very over similar, right? So now, yeah. okay, so now we know what medieval artwork looks like, and it's pretty clear it's going on there sarcophagus lid, whatever. Let's go back to the Prey Codex and let's see what we see there. So uh, if we pull up the Prey Codex and look at the bottom image, you see, well, that, that thing there looks kind of like a diagonal rectangle, right? And then the angel is sitting on it, and he's like pointing into this thing. Seems to me that maybe this isn't the shroud at all. Maybe what the, this is is a sarcophagus. And that's the lid on an angle, which is just like all the other representations right. that we saw. So. so why is it covered with this? herring with this herringbone this diagonal pattern because it's decorated just like the other ones are decorated that's why one of them looks one way and one of them looks the other way so you can clearly visually distinguish which one is which right Uh, i think this is even further enhanced if you zoom in a little bit and kind of focus your attention right there in the middle of the diagonal piece that we're identifying as the lid because there's something on there that uh i think it's worth looking at you see that see that thing thing i've outlined in red there i don't know about you jared that looks kind of like a cloth to me. You know, I mean, it, it is it's like, so when we, when I first looked at this image prior to like actually reading about it, I looked at that. And I said, what are they talking about? There's no burn holes on the shroud. The shroud well, yeah, is like, it's it's right just there. right it's there. Like, like, what are you like talking about? There's no pattern on it. Yeah. Like what's going on? Yeah. Um, yeah. That little guy. I wouldn't worry about that little guy. <laughs> well, so th- that's supposed. So that, according to shroud proponents, is not actually the shroud. That's just something else. Um, the face uh, in fact, cloth or something. Yeah, I was actually listening to a uh, some people talk about this on the YouTube's, and one of the guys was like, "Oh, I don't, uh, I don't even know what that is." Like he didn't even consider that as part of the shroud. He didn't never even cross his mind. So, Which, I mean, if again, kind of cast your mind back to the other images, this is exactly what you saw all the time. You saw a lid with a fabric on it that was obviously intended to be the shroud like this this is what they drew so i don't know how you could just blithely throw that away but maybe the reason you throw it away is because of the l-shaped holes that we put a pin in earlier right so let's look at that uh the the argument is that there's no reason why this guy would put circles there the only reason to put them there is because he was trying to to show this burn pattern right and it's and it matches up in that l shape right so So let's there are in the hung in the prey codex there's actually two more pictures I actually found a, a, a website that had every page 
of the Prey Codex, and I found all the pictures. There were two of them. Here's one of them, and I've drawn some helpful arrows. You can see... That's a uh, lot of arrows. A lot of, a lot of arrows, because there's a lot of circles. I tell you what, this artist loved him some circles. It is a circle palooza in this, in this <laughs> manuscript. This one, and then also the other image, uh, which is Jesus, I guess Jesus being taken down from the cross. Everything that is supposed to look neat and fancy is covered in circles, right? It's like a favorite thing of this guy to do, evidently, to decorate his stuff. So going back to the Prey Codex, why are there circles there? Because he's trying to make it look fancy. And my dude loves circles. And there's even there's circles all over the place everywhere. Yeah, it it makes more sense from an artistic standpoint. Like the guy had like the zigzag stuff. He's like, ooh, that looks kind of blank. Let me put a little circles. And remember, this is a miniature. This is not something that's, you know, eight by ten large scale thing. This is a small manuscript. So the the art style has to be more rudimentary. Um, and he clearly wasn't an amazing artist anyway. I mean, yeah. this this seems to me like Pyridelia in action where the brain, brain will look for patterns that aren't really there. That seems to be really yeah. all this is. I mean, and, and as just an aside, we don't know for sure when the burning of the shroud that made these holes happened. We know that it was there in the 1500s, uh, but before that, we don't know when it showed up. So who knows? Uh, but it seems like for the Prey Codex, it, it seems honestly like a nothing burger to me. There's no thumbs. Okay, Byzantine artists didn't have thumbs sometimes. Whatever, no big deal. Uh, the uh, body being naked. Yes, okay, it is naked. Point. Sure. But that's an artistic choice he could have made. Uh, the hands are crossed over. Yes, of course, they're crossed over his groins because you're not going to have Jesus' penis hanging out on your manuscript. And uh, the L-shaped holes and everything, it looks like it's just a sarcophagus lid. That's what it looks like. There's one other thing on the Prey Codex, though, that is missing had we had it actually been copied from the Shroud that I think is important to bring up. So if we pull back up the image here, what do you notice that is missing here that probably should be on here, Jordan? An image of Jesus? Well, the image of Jesus on the Shroud but specifically in the facial hair region oh, of, that's right. of the Jesus. <laughs> I forgot about this. We we talked about it last uh last the first time when we first talked about the Shroud of Turin, way, way back. Uh that proponents will make a big deal over the fact that Jesus with a beard shows up at a certain time in history. And look, Jesus on the Shroud has a beard, and look, this is a beard, and look, they're identical. Except this dude doesn't have a beard. Like <laughs> he doesn't look anything like the Jesus on the Shroud of Turin. Like that dude doesn't right. have a beard. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. It, it's possible that. The artist, even if he had seen the Shroud of Turin, decided not to put a beard on the guy. That is possible, but, but it there's seems... a couple other guys in the image that have some pretty decent beards going on. Yeah. So I, so I think, yeah, it's it seems like a point against it. And on balance, I don't think the Prey Codex is a strong argument. No. Um, so that's the first thing. But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that would push it back what, like seventy years? You know, that's they needed yeah. to go all the way back to the first century, right? So that's not good enough, you know. Um, like I said at the top. We both looked, we both looked hard and we couldn't find a single peer reviewed source talking about the provenance of the shroud through the ages. Um, we found a lot of bloggers and yeah. people, historians even talking about it, but nothing. Right. And it, as a, an important point, there is a difference between a historian pontificating on something and a historian publishing in peer reviewed literature. Mm -hmm. A historian can say whatever the heck he, he, they want uh, just when they're just talking, right? Historians can have weird views too, but if they're going to substantiate it with evidence and peer review, it's harder because they have to convince other historians that their view is at least plausible, 
right? They, they're going to have to, it's going to have to withstand scrutiny. So while if I just, I don't know, say something, and then a historian says something, probably the historian is more likely to be right than me, uh, we should really be looking at peer-reviewed literature if we can, and there just isn't any, right? Which to me, it, it's not definitive proof, but it's not a great sign when someone who has credentials, who is qualified and could publish and presumably knows how to publish, but doesn't publish when it's about their pet theory. So like exactly. these historians, they have published works. They know how peer review works. And yet when it comes to talking about the Shroud of Turin and its history before the 14th century, suddenly they can't do peer review. Now, it doesn't mean they're wrong that they might just have chosen not to publish in it. But when I see that, it makes me do that uh, that Cardi B meme you've seen on TikTok when she's like, that's suspicious. That's weird. That's weird, right? <laughs> like, yeah. that's how I feel when I see them not publishing peer review, right? Well, like, especially when you consider... losing yeah. it because I mentioned TikTok. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> especially anyway, when yeah. you consider what does get published on, right? Like, right. Have you, there's some articles out there that are yeah. published on the weirdest things. And it's not like, oh, it's on the Shroud of Turin. They wouldn't publish it. My hard drive is fast filling up with Shroud of Turin research. Like th this thing is piling up. Journals would yeah. love to have this published. They're just not publishing it. Okay. And yeah. maybe, maybe the reason they're not publishing it is because historians aren't convinced. They don't find it convincing. Right. So an example that is put, pointed out has, was actually pointed out in the comments of the last video was uh, De Wesselo. He is an art historian. He went to school. He actually has a PhD in the subject and he specializes in medieval history. Awesome. Perfect. Exactly the, the type of guy you'd want to look into this. He published his findings. But unfortunately, he publishes findings in through Amazon, which like anybody could do. I could publish through Amazon if I wanted to. Uh, and his book is called The Shroud of Turin and the Secret of the Resurrection. He asserts that the Shroud of Turin is actually another artifact, the image of Edessa, that was kept in Constantinople for centuries. Now, we don't have time to go through his entire argument point by point. I'll just say that it all hinges entirely on the Prey Codex. And we've already talked about that. So if, if you have to accept the Prey Codex, and it has to be so strong that it is able to substantiate everything else, right? And I just don't think it's that strong. Uh, so that's, that's one historian's take on it. Another one that I saw in the blogosphere a lot was pointing out similarities between medieval art and the Shroud of Turin, uh, just like in the way that Jesus is depicted. Example. So there's an example. You've got the Shroud. Now remember, the person who would be painting this would only have the image on the left. Yeah, we're right? showing you both here so you can see that. Yeah. Right. So the things they'll point to are <clears throat> that he has a beard. There's kind of like a similar-ish mark on his forehead like Something the little like on the brow thing. area yeah. yeah like a triangular thing there right maybe the lines under the eyes or whatever uh, uh the, the parting of the hair sometimes there'll be a depiction with like a little wispy hair um and then the the beard is supposedly cleft so if i just do this to my beard now i'm jesus but uh <laughs> this guy doesn't have the cleft in his beard but this well, guy maybe. does yeah. so this guy has a major cleft to his beard. But his if you notice, so they're saying, why would anybody paint the image of Jesus with a beard like that unless they were looking at this image and they didn't realize that that dark, that light spot there wasn't actually the beard, but like the blood or or whatever that was discolored it. But so this is the kind of stuff we're talking. Like, if you go back through history, we could sit here for hours and hours and just pull up images of Jesus throughout history. That does not mean that every single one of those people were looking at the Shroud of Turin and saying, I have to do this. this or way. 
were talking to someone who had seen the shroud or had heard right. stories of it because like we said there are thousands of pictures of jesus throughout history like everywhere it was christianity was the dominant religion in europe he's probably the since, most depicted dude in history since the fourth century he's everywhere yeah. and so if you look hard enough you can just find you're gonna find images that look like the the shroud of turin you're just going to there's there's it there's just so many like you couldn't help but find it's not whether there are similarities between this guy's depiction of a bearded Middle Eastern man and the Shroud's depiction of a bearded Middle Eastern man. The thing that it has to be that the similarities have to be in of such a nature that only the Shroud of Turin could plausibly explain it. Yeah. And there's some people that go off some really crazy things. Like I heard Gary Habermas talking about, like, if you look really closely, you can see like coins like on the eyes of Jesus and like an imprint of something. I'm like both Pontius Pilate symbol on there. Like I don't see that in the shroud, but if you see that great. Um, I don't think the shrouds resolution, <laughs> like it is fine, but it's not like, yeah, I don't know that you can like read inscriptions on this thing. That seems like really reaching because uh, it's fuzzy and it, it's hard to see anyway. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like, you can't even see the image if you're too close to it because of how faint it is. Okay. So we're enough not going yeah. enough of that. Basically, it's all paradelia. It's all just looking for for trends. And if you if I have enough of a sample, you're going to find those trends. So this guy isn't a historian, but let's talk about another very popular uh, idea that has circulated for a while. This one, a name that pops up a lot, Ian Wilson. He published a book way back. Uh, in the 70s, I think his first it was book like was like 1979. I think the first book came out. I actually right. tried finding a copy of it uh, at the local library, uh, unsuccessful. But he has since updated that book in 2011, The Shroud, Fresh Light on the 2000-Year-Old Mystery, and I bought it to look through it. Um, Wilson, just some background on him. He studied modern, he studied modern history at Oxford in the late 60s. Uh, so far as I can tell, the only published works he has are books on The Shroud, like just for popular audiences that he's that's like nothing peer reviewed, but okay. So he's just a layperson. Fine. Uh, his theory, which I, I'm hesitant to even bring it up because we're not going to fully debunk it, but I feel like I have to. I feel like I cannot possibly have read this and not share it with everyone around me. Right. So at some oh. point, let us know in the comments if this is something interests you. If you want us to really dig into this book, we're planning on doing book reviews in 2023. So if you really want to hear it, we'll talk about Ian Wilson's book. But just in brief, his. Uh, theory is that the Shroud of Turin is the same as the image of Edessa, which was in Constantinople. So there's this thing that is referenced sometimes in history, an image that uh, the Byzantines, and they didn't call themselves the Byzantines, they believe they were, they, they saw themselves as Roman, just a historical note, but doesn't matter. So they just would show it uh, for devotional purposes. It was a big deal to them. It was something just real quick, the image of Odessa was supposedly like a cloth that had a depiction of Jesus on it. Um, yeah, usually yeah. his face is what they yeah. would talk about, right? Uh, so that's that was his. That's where his theory hinges on. But he points out pilgrims to Constantinople list relics that were kept there that they kind of saw or heard about, and they list burial shrouds of Jesus, no image, and then they also separately list artifacts that bear the image of Jesus. So in the minds of these tourists, these pilgrims to Constantinople, these are not the same thing. Burial shrouds, no image. Things with the image, not shrouds, okay? So in order to overcome this, that he's don't worry, he's got a great explanation. Wilson says, obviously, what happened is the Byzantines, they tricked these tourists. See, they, they, they bamboozled them because they used a 
they used a copy of the Shroud of Turin as a relic. And it's because there were popular stories of Jesus doing like the Forrest Gump thing and like wiping his face with something that has its face on it. And he like hands it like that. Uh, and so they knew that this was the image, right? So they had to like, that they, they didn't want to throw away this legend that they had like going for him. So they made this copy and were like planning on like gradually working in the idea that this image was like on the burial cloth. Uh, and, but I guess they didn't get around to it <laughs> because Constantinople was sacked. Okay. So that's one thing, but don't worry. He's got, there's another gap that he needs to explain. See, between the sacking of Constantinople when the image of Edessa is gone from history in the 1200s, very early 1200s, there's a 150 year gap between there and when it shows up in France. Okay. Now, this is a fabulous relic that just disappears from history completely. And so, why? Why does no one talk about having this amazing thing for 150 years? Okay. So he tries to play, he, he puts on his his Warner Wallace hat and plays detective for a second. He says, okay, so who could have done this? Let's, let's work up a profile. This had to be kept secret for 150 years. That suggests it couldn't have been an individual because they die, right? So it had to have been a group. This group had to be well-disciplined in order to keep a secret of this magnitude. They also had to have a connection to the crusaders that were in Constantinople, either there themselves or have like a, a, you know, connections with these crusaders, right? They had to be very wealthy, strongly religious, or both because they have this priceless artifact, but they didn't sell it. They kept it hidden, right? So that means either they didn't need the money or they had religious convictions against selling it or both, probably both, Okay. So, and they had to, lastly, they had to have some connection to the French knightly nobility because it ends up in the hands of a French knight in 1355 or whatever. Uh, so, secret group, well-disciplined, crusaders, wealthy, disciplined, you know, who could, connections to French nobility, who could this be? Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, none other than the Knights <laughs> Templar. Yes, that's right. We have this, this, <laughs> we don't have time to unravel this rejected Assassin's Creed DLC plot. <laughs> this, this like Dan Brown's less popular sequel of an idea. This, I, oh. I don't even know what to say about <laughs> this. So we're not going to, I just felt like I, I had to share that with you. I'm not going to debunk yeah. it, but I felt like you had to share this experience with me. <laughs> it's, we need some levity in all this, right? It's, okay. it's a lot of ad hoc, just blah, blah, blah uh, yeah. on top of it, right? Okay, um, no, nothing that I'm going to hang my hats on. Certainly nothing I'm going to throw away radiocarbon dating for, but. Correct, yeah. Maybe what, there is something we could throw radiocarbon dating away for, and that's something a little more scientific. What about the pollen? What about, about the, the pollen? pollen? So. so You've probably heard this. I know I've seen it in the comments of both videos. So let's talk about it. Uh, there's pollen on the Shroud of Turin. This pollen tests were done by Swiss criminologist. Uh, his name was Max Frey Solzer. I believe he had a PhD, but he was a criminologist. And there's him looking super happy about, uh, he, he apparently was like part of pioneering this tape collection method. Um, that was his contribution to history. But he's super stoked about using tape to. Uh, he's the pull first stuff person off. to invent the lint rollers. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, what he his claim to fame is for in this context, anyway, is that he took those samples and he looked under them in a microscope 
and he identified some pollen. Even more than that, he identified that there was pollen. He said that he identified all the way down to the specific species of pollen and that these species were plants that are now extinct. They grew exclusively in Palestine during the time of Christ. And I forget the exact number. I want to say it's like 40 something. It was many different species. Right. That he identified. So first of all, um, was Frey a botanist? He was not. That's a great question. He was a criminologist, in case hmm. you forgot when I said that 10 seconds ago. Were you not listening, Jared? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm just wondering how a criminologist was able to identify this pollen as being I guess from I guess Palestine. I a botanist and... on the weekends. Okay. I don't know. Oh. So, <laughs> okay. So, yes, he was not a botanist, okay? Uh, according to actual botanists, you very rarely can identify pollen all the way down to the species. Um, I, I've looked into some botany papers as in preparation for this, and I found one by an actual set of botanists, uh, the M. Boy paper. The per publisher of that boy is in the paper that we have referenced in, a in the description. Check that out. They are arguing in favor of the shroud being an ancient burial shroud. So this isn't like a hostile witness who doesn't believe like this is fake, right? This is somebody right. who thinks it's authentic, but they're saying that they identify different species groups than Frey did. So they don't claim to get down to the species level. They're like, not only can we not get to the species level, they're different groups. And they identify them with like burial stuff. We won't get into that. But basically, Frey's entire argument doesn't make sense. He wasn't uh he, he wasn't qualified to make it. It contradicts what actual botanists say. Uh Boy said that the possibility of being able to pinpoint the geographical origin of the shroud is, has been ruled out. It That's... doesn't get much more on a clear cut than that. Yeah. Right. And if we just think about this for a second, this shroud was taken around everywhere, displayed by everyone and their mother out there. Is it possible that pollen could have got on it in its travels? Yes. But even then we wouldn't have been able to date it to that certain time. So this is just a even even if so if you had pollen that could only have been there in first century Judea, maybe you'd have some kind of argument. Um, but that's not the case. That that's certainly not the case. So what you have maybe is pollen from some areas. So all that tells you is that either the shroud was in that area or pollen from that area got on the shroud. But like again, you can't get down to the specific species. Plants that cover a wide geographical area have pollen that all looks, kind of looks the same. So this is not <clears throat> credible. One of the other things that is supposedly credible about the shroud is the weaving technique. So you've probably heard this if you've ever done any research on it. The shroud has a three over one herringbone twill weave. This is so incredible because it, it proves that it had to come from somebody who was wealthy. And it, it means that Joseph of Arimathea would have been the only person able to afford this shroud it also and in the first century and in the first century because this 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 weave is only used in the first century in judea uh these are claims i'm not making these claims by the way but these, these are, are claims, claims that you will hear yeah <clears throat> um so yeah so that's the claim um in fact they the weave was so ap important apparently that it shows up in art all over the place shows up in the pre codex whatever so the question is is it actually in fact that distinctive and um isolated to the first century so again, we see a lot of blog posts. We see a lot of like uh, 
Christian websites, I, there's not a lot of peer review on this, right? There's not a lot of textile experts talking about this. To the extent we do have textile experts, so far as I can tell, they don't substantiate this claim. Yeah. Uh, I want to shout out to uh, Hugh Ferry, who has actually commented on some of our videos and pointed out some places where we could have been a little more articulate and a little more precise. We really appreciate that and pointing us in the right direction. Uh, his site was a good um, source of, of information for some of these things because he does something that I wish more people did, uh, which is cite his sources. Crazy. Which means we don't have to take him for face value. He's done a lot of the dirty work of like collecting things on some of these things. And then you can say, oh, let's see what that person says. Let's see what that person. And you can follow that rabbit trail all the way back to the original source. So um, in this rabbit trail, <clears throat> uh, Gilbert Reyes, who's a textile expert, uh, he published an article called The Textile Study of 1973 to 74. He was on the STIRP team. And as part of this uh, thing, he said, here's a quote from that paper. The weave used for this fabric does not present any particular characteristics and does not allow deter a determination of the period of manufacture. In view of these observations, one can say that we have no precise indication permitting us to affirm with certainty that the fabric does not date from the time of Christ. It is, however, equally true that there is nothing that would permit us to state that the manufacture of this fabric was affected in that period. Basically, you can't tell anything at all about the time of, of manufacture from this pattern, is what he's saying. And he's a textile expert. Well, that's that's it. Pretty much clear cut right there, right? So uh, uh, Another one, Gilbert <laughs> Vile uh, wrote an article titled Shrouded in Mystery. Very clever. And he published this. At, was it was a textile magazine? It's a, it's a textile magazine. I actually tried to find the article, like in a PDF version. Um, but this is a magazine for people who sell rugs, or they talk about ancient weave patterns. They talk about all kinds of stuff related so, to textiles. So not peer reviewed. <clears throat> not peer reviewed. So no. Take with some salt, but at least somebody who allegedly knows what they're talking about. So what he said was uh, that. He, he looked at errors in the weave and you could see that there were mistakes in the weaving pattern mm -hmm. of the shroud. Right. And in his opinion, this meant that it was the based on the, the pattern he was seeing, he believed it was produced on a four shaft loom. Yeah. And how he came to that conclusion was basically he looked at the, the errors that were made in a re repetitive pattern. And so if you had like, you're doing the fours on a, newer style loom if you pick up the four and you lay down one and the next time you only pick up three and you lay down another one because you're stacking up stuff in here you're basically going to make these mistakes pretty fast because the new style loom is much more efficient at putting the weaves together whereas an old hand style loom that wasn't mechanical like this the weaver would have caught their mistakes and would have been able to fix them much more easily. So by having these errors in there, it actually allows us to determine what kind of loom it was made on, which is so pretty cool. In, in his opinion, it, it was made on a loom that was invented in the late Middle Ages. And right so, around the time that the shroud showed up in history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, about, weird. <laughs> about the time that French Knight showed up. So yeah. this, is, this is just the opinion of a textile expert, not peer-reviewed just an opinion but yep. on the other side all we've got is opinions too so i don't know again kind of a wash okay uh that's the weave there's one last piece uh we're going on like 45 minutes so there's one last piece i want to talk about um and this is about the body proportions okay there's a lot of ink spilled about how this perfectly matches a crucified man uh that's a whole other can of worms that 
there's so much that we have to cut out to actually fit these in the hour or so that we're doing. So and somebody like, in the comments will be like, but you didn't cover this. So that proves that it's this route of turn. It's or you're being right? disingenuous because you didn't cover my favorite piece of evidence. Like, man, I've only got so much time. Okay. So if you think, if you want to tell us how disingenuous we are for not covering yeah, your favorite piece of evidence, so. put it in the comments. Uh, but in any case, uh, one thing that I hear from skeptics a lot is about the uh, body proportions. So mm -hmm. uh, I heard some people talk about how the arms are kind of an unnatural spot for a body that's like laying on the ground. Uh, they're covering his genitals, as we've spent way too much time talking about, uh, but that's kind of awkward. And I actually like ran a scientific test myself. I weighed down, and it is pretty awkward to, to cover your genitals like that when you're laying down. You have to exert continuous force. Uh, so the, it's not a natural resting, resting place. That would be like more on your stomach. Now, maybe there's an explanation for this. I didn't see a proponent make an explanation. Uh, I don't know if like they held his arms there until rigor mortis set in, or, or maybe that's how bodies end up in rigor mortis. I don't know. I couldn't find a refutation for it. Take that for what you will. I don't put a ton of stock into it, but there it is. More importantly, though, uh, that led me to another claim that the arms are significantly out of whack on Turin Man, on this Jesus. Yeah. At first so, glance, when you just look at the image, it looks like a dude, right? You're not yeah. really like looking at the proportions. Right. right. Yeah. So the claim is twofold. One, that one arm is significantly shorter than the other. And also that both arms together are freakishly long. Okay. Like really long. Like really long. So uh, I saw this among other places that I saw this claim. I saw it on Rational Wiki, which immediately makes me extremely suspicious because Rational Wiki is a terrible source that nobody should ever use. So <laughs> that made me that definitely made me uh, uh, take take stock. So uh, I decided I'd check it myself. So what I did was I started with an image of Turn Man, and I'm going to compare the arms. So I drew what I thought was about a horizontal on the shoulders. It actually doesn't matter exactly where on the shoulders it lands. All that matters is you're measuring the same relative position, right? Because if the arms were proportional, they should measure the same no matter where you start, right? Yeah, as long as um, you're somewhat close to each thing. As long as you're, yeah, horizontal yeah. on both. So I drew a horizontal line there so I could make sure I got uh, the thing right. I then scaled the body. The actual scale, again, doesn't matter. We're only comparing proportions, right? So don't worry about the actual measurements. It's just relative size. All right. So I measured the uh, left arm or sorry, the one on the left of the image, which is the person's right arm. OK. Uh, and I measured all the way to his fingertips to his shoulder. OK. And it came with 87.3 centimeters. Again, don't put stock in the actual number. The important Somebody's going to get hung up on that. 87.3 <laughs> units. It's a dimensionless number. OK. Just 87.3. It's all that matters. Uh, then I looked at the left arm. The left arm is 72.7. That is way shorter. <laughs> like way shorter. That's like almost six inches difference. 16% shorter. Now, granted, I was kind of clicking manually, kind of eyeballing it. Maybe it's not perfect. You know, maybe the perspective is a little weird. Uh, still, even if you gave it a 10% difference, it's still very different. And they're usually like exactly the same on an actual human body, right? Um, I thought, well, maybe like, the the way the because it's it's a allegedly a three-dimensional body right so maybe like the way he has his arms like they're all scrunched up but that would make it worse because you'd have to unscrunch them you know uh i checked out this statue that was made by fanti it didn't look like there was anything with the way the arms were laying that would make this thing invalid and then i scoured the internet to try to find anybody debunking this claim and i couldn't find anybody so 
I don't know. Maybe there's an answer. I wish I had access to the statue to, to measure it. Whatever. Possibly his left arm is uh, significantly shorter than his right. Now, the next one. Another claim that's made by skeptics is that Jesus' arms overall are super weirdly long. He has a big wingspan. So usually if you put your arms all the way out and measured from fingertip to fingertip, that length is equal to your height. Okay, very Roughly close. So. Yep. Yeah, very close to your height. There's some variance, like if some big time players in the NBA have like a 1.1 ratio where they have like freakishly long arms. Okay. And if you actually measure Jesus as a flat image there on, on the shroud, if you just take scale and measure, it's about 1.1. So it does look like he has freakishly long arms. However, what shroud proponents say is that this is not, he's not laying flat on the, in the image. He's actually kind of curled up. Like, yeah. like that right and so what i did was i uh did some measurements i looked at the projection length right like if you just project it down and then i measured the length along the body to get his true height from ankles to top of the forehead or top of top of the head rather that ratio is 1.12 i did some math and if you scale with that scrunched up body then the arm wingspan is about the same as his height so um, it doesn't appear that that claim actually holds up. Wanted to put that in there because it's common among skeptics, and we want to correct skeptics too. We're not here to just take shots at the shroud of turn. We want to make sure we give good information. So possibly left arm shorter than the right. Maybe some funky things going on with the perspective. I don't know. Uh, it, I didn't. It didn't seem like it was, but maybe. Uh, but the wingspan thing doesn't hold up. Cool. And well, there I, you go. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, that one is kind of out there for me. Like, I, I could see it. Like, it just looks weird. But we're not saying that just because that is, it's not the not authentic, the, right? The argument is that it's made by an artist, and he had to make his arms weirdly long in order to cover the genitals. That's the argument that's made. I don't know if that's a great argument, just but now you have the information. So, with that, we're done. We have finished episode three. We are done with the Shroud of Turin. We're complete. Uh, to sum up, all three episodes. Um, is the Shroud of Turin authentic? I think the preponderance of the evidence says no. I think that the radiometric dating should not be rejected out of hand. I, I've seen several people. Rucker is one of them who says because the dates are discordant, they don't match exactly. We should just reject it. Which when the literature says reject it, what they're saying is we can't use this to say when it was made. Like it was made at this decade or that decade or that decade. You can't. However, there's a big difference between we should not use it to determine exactly what decade it was made and it was made in the first century, right? And so the radiometric dating combined with the flimsy nature that in some cases ridiculous nature of the evidence from history and the explanations that require a dematerializing body with a cloud of neutrons and protons, it, it, it's nuts. It's ad hoc and it it, it is not necessary to explain what we see. And so while we can't say for sure how the image was formed, that's a big question mark. Doesn't seem like it's authentic. And even if we could prove that the Shroud of Turin was from the first century and it originated in Judea, Palestine, that tells us nothing about whether or not the dude on the Shroud is Jesus and that it's the result of a flipping miracle right i mean there were other crucified people a lot of crucified people in yeah. fact uh in the first century now i will give them this though 
it is a crucified man from the first century, all beaten up and everything. So that is at least more than nothing. It's not, sure, it's sure. not, it is not nothing, right? It's it not is, like he had like a nameplate on his chest that said, I right. am Jesus, right? But <laughs> like, I'll, I'll concede that certainly yeah. like the case for Jesus' resurrection is better off having an authentic shroud than not. Sure. You know, I'll give him that for sure. Um, unless and until though, we could definitively prove that the shroud was miraculous. The image, uh, I don't know, does not equal God did it. So. And as skeptics, we are fine saying, I don't know. And we shouldn't say, like, well, maybe it is and go with it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm mistakes. curious, though, like we've done a, just so much research on this. Was there anything that stuck out to you? What was the thing that made you think the most? So for me, the the thing that stuck out the most that I still trying to wrap my head around was how was the image made? Like, and I think I know why this is for me, but I also think I understand why the shroud is so alluring to people. It's because it's a mystery people yeah. love mysteries and like they, they both love mysteries and hate mysteries because they want an answer exactly yeah so i want human, an answer <laughs> the human mind abhors a vacuum and if they can't come up with a good theory they'll come up with a conspiracy theory right yeah, yeah. i i agree that the the image i don't know how it was made i have no idea like there's see there are certain things that i'm pretty sure it wasn't <laughs> but <laughs> i don't know how it was uh, on that i i'm also on the image specifically on the evidence against uh, just like paint. Cause like when I was coming into this at first, just I, there's an image on there. Days of the 14th century. Okay. Probably some artist painted it or something like that. That would have been my guess to start yeah. with before I looked at anything, but there actually seems to be a fair amount of disconfirming evidence to just like a guy with a brush, you know, it doesn't have uh, any fibers like stuck together from any kind of liquid. There's no meniscus marks where like the liquid would have stopped flowing. So it would like doesn't stop go there. into the creases and all that stuff. Like yeah. Doesn't go into the creases, uh how fuzzy and and like how uh blurry it is. Like if so it would be very difficult for an artist who was like actually painting you would have to like it would be difficult to maintain the perspective. So it'd be a trap. None of this shows that an artist did not do it, but it shows that he probably if an artist did do it, it probably wasn't with paint. Uh, it would have to be something more sophisticated and it would be uh, difficult, way more difficult than just like whipping up an image, right? So, But that doesn't mean that we won't find out next week, you know, that it was done, or we find another shroud image. It doesn't matter. Yeah, we'll see. So bottom line, we don't know how the image was made, but to the extent we have uh, evidence, it's 14th century. And if it's not first century, it can't be Jesus. Yep. Okay. So uh, if you think we got something wrong, <clears throat> I know you're going to do it because I've seen you do it for the last month. Please uh, leave in a comment. I'd like to thank everybody who's here now. we got a bunch of new subscribers. So, uh, hi. We don't just do Shroud of Turn videos, believe it or not. I know that's all you've seen in the last month. Uh, but we do videos on all kinds of skepticism. So, we're going to be doing different stuff in the next couple of weeks. We're going to take a break from the Shroud of Turn. But let us know what you want us to talk about. Um, since you've made it all the way to the end... You're going to be rewarded with our fallacy of the day, which actually uh, I'd like to crowdsource a different name for because we're almost we're kind of like running out of fallacies. Uh, we've been doing this for a while now, so um, <laughs> we're starting to recycle some fallacies. And there's yeah. only so many fallacies. There's, there's only I mean, so many, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. if you have a better name for like a kind of thing related to skepticism and doubt that could be a fallacy or just a thing and argumentation you see, I don't know. Think Tell like Sesame comments. Street letter of the day kind of thing. Right. But for Tell us in the comments what you think it should be. But we're going to call it fallacy of the day to have a better name. So today's fallacy of the day is the bullshit asymmetry <laughs> principle, otherwise known as Brandolini's law. And we have been beating our face against Brandolini's law for the last month. 
Yeah, uh, so Brandolini's law is basically states that the amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is in order of magnitude bigger than that needed to produce it. Right. So it is trivially easy to come up with bullshit. It is so easy to just like throw an explanation out there. And it is often very difficult to actually refute these kind of things. And so uh, I say this as a word of caution. First of all, it is not your responsibility as a skeptic to refute every claim, right? You should start at a position of doubt, a virtuous doubt. You don't want to get to extreme skepticism where it becomes like conspiracy theory nonsense, right? Uh, but a position of virtuous skepticism, a uh, position of doubt based on your background knowledge. And if a new claim is provided and they can't provide evidence for that claim, then the appropriate thing to do is to reject it or withhold judgment until there is evidence, right? Yeah. This is very similar to like a Gish Gallup technique, but I'd say on a much lower level because you're literally, it's not, it's just BS. It's, it's, it's not necessarily it a BS machine gun. Like yeah. the Gish Gallup is like, Brandolini's law in hyperdrive because yeah. not only do you throw out nonsense claims, you just keep throwing them out. And because yeah. like, oh, well, I made a hundred claims, he only refuted one. Well, that's because it took me forty minutes to refute your one stupid claim. Yeah. Uh, so that's the bullshit asymmetry principle. Also, kind of in reverse, um, if you throw something out at somebody, like, hey, have you thought of this? Keep in mind, even if it's not bullshit, even if it is just like a legitimate claim, it's going to take more energy for someone to look into it than it was for you to just say it. So if so, it's always okay to say, I don't know, and I'll have to look into it more later. That's a perfectly legitimate answer for you to give. And it's also a legitimate answer for you to receive. So it's also okay to say, I don't know. And I don't care. And I don't feel like looking into it. That's <laughs> so. also fine too. You have finite uh, time on this planet, Yeah, but we won't say that because we, I don't know. We hate ourselves. Masochists. Because we, we have reason to doubt everything. So. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's until next time. You always have reason to doubt. Thank God we're done with a shot of turn. <laughs> Peace out. <laughs>